The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Um, and... So, Kate, if you could tweet out the YouTube setting. Uh... Yep. Oh, I'll retweet it. Hold on. Can I do this oh. on the fly? See if I have that capacity. There we go. We are Hi, live. Hi, Jordan. By the way, I'm Jack. It's nice to meet Hi, you. Hi, Jack. Yeah, Jordan Allenberg, meet Jack Balkan. Kate, meet Jordan Allenberg. We are live. We don't have fun anymore. In lieu of fun, you can hang out with us. Uh, you can join us if you're not already on the Zoom link. Join us on the Zoom link. The rules are as they have been uh, since the Zoom bombers forced us to adopt them. If you have a question, go to the Q&A box, sketch out your question, and if we're convinced you're a real person, we will elevate you to ask your question. If we're not, we will dismiss it with extreme prejudice and a shocking lack of due process. Um, <laughs> very, very, uh, very standard social media practice. Yeah, no, that's that's what we're doing. And uh, anybody who doesn't like it can uh, call a different show. I mean, like, there's a you know, it's a, it's a wide world out. Or do we, does that only happen internally for you and we don't get to see the execution take place? No, so we, uh, you can probably see it because you're a panelist, but uh, mm -hmm. in one of our shows, people sh uh, in large numbers showed up and started uh, shouting racial epithets and in the chat and, um, and uh, 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 sending lewd and misogynistic uh, stuff at, at Kate and Danielle Citrin. And so we have adopted these practices to allow maximum participation from, shall we say, the right sort of people. A, it sounds like a Red Sox game broke out. <laughs> See, I would say it sounds like a Yankees game broke out. <laughs> you know, and yet I still haven't received- well, It doesn't sound like an Orioles game broke out because people were there. I'm, am I gonna, I, are you gonna give me a hard time on, on live YouTube, Jack? Yes, I, not I, 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 I so what is this paper? It's the pa it's the paper, Ben, the traumatizing paper. Oh, this is your Yale Law Review paper. Yeah. This is a this is a well, I haven't read it yet, but it's potentially a great paper. And I, sight unseen, have agreed to teach it in my Yale Law School class on digital speech. And therefore, and I have been uh, she has been promising it to me for I, I mean, I don't know how long. And, oh, man. and it is about to arrive through my email client, it but it hasn't. Well, when, when it arrives, I'm tweeting you out. can announce that it has arrived and on live on YouTube. Well, uh, what's my plan? Without reading it, you wouldn't be the first. <laughs> it's like, you know, you're not, he's not even my, he's not even technically doesn't have anything over me anymore. You're not even my, like, you're not on my, I, you gave me my PhD. You're not on my committee. <laughs> like, now this is just. This it's is just residual terror. Residual. <laughs> I, I've told you many times, Kate, that the PhD never ends. Yes, no, you have told me that. <laughs> so, we are here to talk about the future of higher ed in 
the era of perpetual pandemics. Um, so I, I want to start the, the conversation with an attack on the premise, which is why are we assuming that this is going to change higher education at all, rather than be a brief break from higher education? And then we'll, uh, uh, you know, things will snap back to more or less what they were as soon as we don't have a rampaging communicable disease going around. Yeah, that's very well. That's very well said. You're a very eloquent fellow. Well, is someone going to defend that premise? Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Jordan. Which side are you on in this? Uh, uh, which dog in this fight do you have? I think I'm. The, I think I'm. I'm an anti-premise dog. Partly because I can see that the students don't like it. They don't like what we're doing right now. They would rather be doing what they're used to doing. They're not sort of suddenly finding my eye that their eyes are opened to the wonders of distance learning and they wish they could always do this. I would not say that that's the case. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I wouldn't put the premise the way you did though, Ben. I, what I would say is there have been a series of tendencies that have been going on for at least a decade, possibly more. And this might uh, be an accelerant. It's not going to be the major cause of them. And how would you describe the tendencies? Well, these are tendencies that have applied to almost every profession. Uh, I like, you know, one of my jokes is that the internet dissolves professions on contact, uh, and uh, uh, which is an exaggeration. But basically, uh, the the ability to communicate with lots of people anywhere, anytime, through various media, has the effect of undermining uh, forms of professional hierarchy. Education being one kind of professional hierarchy, journalism being another, as you well know understand. So uh, we saw early versions of it with the blogosphere, which allowed people to route around and glom on to existing forms of journalism. They also, at the same time, undermined the business model for journalism. So this is just a general feature of digital networks, and it's, uh, it's affected education. It's affected medicine as well. It's affected law, which is my profession. And so um, really what we're wa watching is a very slow motion set of changes in how education occurs. And this is just a uh, this is just a moment in which people may suddenly look and see the the possibilities of the future. It's not a claim that this is causing it. But what if they don't like the future? Uh, indeed, uh, uh, one could one could turn around, I guess, and live in the past. Uh, by the way, I don't believe in the inevitability of this. I just think that this is a tendency. So um, think of it this way: uh, suppose there are universities that are strapped for cash. I don't know if you know any of them, but I can think of a few. And uh, uh, they, re especially state universities, where in fact uh, state legislatures uh, tend to keep cutting budgets and uh, they have to come up with other ways of making money. And they suddenly just decide that they learn there's a relatively inexpensive way of reaching large numbers of students and providing them with information. Uh, will they adopt it? Well, at the margins, they will probably do so. And it won't be necessarily for the benefit of the students. Um, but they'll do it. The big issue in uh, distance learning, and the people who work, have been working on this for years know it, the question is what parts of education scale and what parts of education don't scale. Some parts of education scale very well. You can learn certain uh, topics, you can learn certain techniques in a very large classroom. That's, you know, there've been lecture halls with 500 students, right? So that's not a problem. But there are parts of the educational experience that really do not scale well, that require, uh, a back and forth discussion between teachers and students, um, all sorts of encouragement, 
things that are, are, have to happen in person. Those things will not scale well. The, the issue is not whether or not um, uh, those things will still exist. The question is whether they'll be well compensated. That is whether or not people who want to do that kind of education will be able to earn a living or whether or not they'll be reduced to the, uh, the situation which many, many adjuncts in higher education already already have to live with. That is, will it accelerate trends that have already been going on in higher education for some time? That's really what the issue is, it seems to me. I just Go ahead, Kate. Yeah, I just want to, so um, Jack, we talked about this a little bit the other day um, when we were when we were Zoom chatting and we were talking and you said you used a term that I really love it because I think it's interesting, but it's the flip side of what you said, which is not like, let's like kind of get out of the worried about our jobs, kind of legal academia type, or like academic, like I'm an academic, Jordan's an academic, Jack's an academic. But like, I'm also really concerned what it means for the future of education for students. And I think that's actually like my main kind of like, as you said, I think that there are some things that you can do well at scale and some things that you can't. And I wonder about the accessibility of kind of certain levels of education. And we use the term, you use the term that there would be a bespoke um, education system, like a, a, a like a small scale kind of education system uh, that like were for maybe the most elite audiences. And I. Ben and I purposely kind of, we were both brilliant and you could talk about a lot of things other than academia on this show, um, but kind of you're both coming from two, like Jordan is in the math and sciences at a large public university. He's at University of Wisconsin. You're at a tiny, um, high, like you're at a tiny um, uh, elite private law school um, uh, at the tippy of the tippy top. Um, and so there's two very, I'm just curious what the conversations are like across those two different those two different types of communities. Well, can I make one point, which is that Yale is not a tiny school in any way. It's, it's oh, but the, the university, the university isn't, but the law school is small. Like they have a very small law school class. Yeah, but it's part of an institution with a pretty big footprint. And one thing I would say in terms of what permanent changes will we see is that this, the educational institutions that are financially strapped are actually not places like University of Wisconsin, which are pretty giant and like have a lot of inflow. I think what we, I'm a little bit worried that we will see, and which is again an acceleration of a trend that already exists, is smaller private colleges which don't have a state department, which don't have a state government behind them, and which are in fact very small. And unfortunately, I don't have the name in my head right now, but I've already seen like one private university in Illinois that already announced that's it, we're done, we were already on the edge and now we're the over the edge and that's it, no more yeah. college. I think we'll see more of that with a shock like we're seeing today. And that's certainly, like I said, a trend that already existed and it yeah. will continue. Education, you know, the, you know the, the economic concept of cost disease, right? Uh, that is to say, it's, it's harder to do a string quartet more efficiently than it was in 1780. Uh, whereas other things can become done more efficiently. Well, some, but not all parts of education have that feature. Right? That is to say, the way you educate people now is very similar to the way you educated people 100 years ago or 200 people years ago. Other parts, completely different. There are other features of education that are just quite different, and you can scale them up and use technology to improve. The real question is, what kind of education? So you teach mathematics, I take it, right? Right. Mathematics, some elements of mathematics uh, scale pretty well, as do other STEMs, but others don't. I mean, I, I mean we ought to talk about that. Yes, Some Jordan, do, what's, but, your what's your experience with that? What so, part of math can you teach remotely uh, well 
And what is the part of like what you do that has to be highly individualized and bespoke? And what's the part of that that needs to be done in person? So there's a few answers to that question. One thing I want to point out is that, uh, as Jack said, we do teach lecture courses of 500 people. But when we do that, there is always every single student in that class is in a small group discussion in a smaller uh, in a smaller room. And that's a very labor intensive process. So there's certainly a part of it that doesn't scale. And I think if students only came to the lectures and didn't have the other aspect, I don't think we would be delivering the education that we're in fact delivering. So even even our giant lecture courses, and I'm sure this is true at Yale at well, like have that not easily scalable component. Um, I, you know, we worried, of course, this is not a new issue, as Jack says. I think we wondered at some point already 10 years ago, gosh, are people just going to watch Khan Academy videos instead of taking our courses? Are they going to learn calculus that way? And what we discovered is that Khan Academy videos, which are excellent, by the way, don't substitute for the lecture. They substitute for the textbook. So what we learned is that the scalable thing substitute for another scalable thing, which is books, and that they were saving the 120 bucks in the textbook, you know, finding out the problems from their discussion leader, and watching the Khan Academy video after going to the lecture with their professor and going to their discussion section. So I think we can't always predict what's going to substitute for what. Then last thing I would say, Ben, is that the other part of it, which, you know, comparatively is rather small and in the grand scheme of things is not so important, but it's important to me is that, you know, training in research, the process of making new mathematicians, which is a pretty small part of what we do, that sort of mysteriously to me, we have not been able to figure out how to virtualize. And despite an immense amount of stuff about research mathematics being available online, um, there are very few people. And when I say very few, I can think, I mean, I can think of one who have sort of trained up as a research mathematician, essentially, on their own without being in a room with another person who's mentoring them. I don't really know why that should be necessary, but so far it seems to be necessary. I mean, I, I have views on this, but I'm coming from a very different discipline. But I think what, uh, so yeah, uh, law, which which wants to think of itself as scientifically oriented, is not scientific oriented. It's, it's part of the humanities. It's part of rhetoric. But what mathematics and law may have in common is the the need for being in relatively close-knit groups of people who are intensely focused on a bunch of problems. And what you're learning is you're learning how to think through those problems in a certain way. And you just have to be in a community to do that. And if you're not in the community, you're, it's gonna be harder and harder to pick up those skills. And yet I know a lot of people, I'm one of them. I was gonna say. Who are sort of, self-trained in law. I don't know a lot of people who are self-trained in math at the level that Jordan is talking about. Or biological research. I was just gonna say, we haven't even talked about labs. Like we haven't even talked right. about the value of lab work and like other types of things. I mean, when I was doing neuroscience in undergraduate, like that was the moment in which I stopped, was the moment that I realized like this was not my skill set. Like I was doing the actual physical lab work. I loved the textbook stuff. I loved the lectures. But when I started having to do all of these like mitochondrial tests on like mice, uh, like various like ganglia, like I stopped having any interest in it whatsoever. Uh, and I could have probably gone on and gotten an entire degree in neuroscience based just on the, I mean, I could have, uh, based just on the textbook work and the lectures and the organic chemistry and everything else. But the lab work is really what the moment when I was a sophomore, I realized it wasn't for me. 
So the question is, goes back to Jordan's question, how do people learn? What is necessary for them to learn in different disciplines? And, and I take it that you were not just talking about people learning calculus. You're talking about people the very, at the top of the profession, the people who actually produce most of the mathematical papers. That's a relatively small number of people. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the second thing I said was pertaining to that group of people. The 500-person lecture is not for that. That's for calculus. No. So, if, uh, so in terms of, so the distinction is really between wholesale and retail, right? Some education, you can do wholesale. That's, you know, you do it with section men. Uh, you do it with uh, section people. Of course, section people get paid worse and worse as you expand out the number of students. Um, and then there are other parts of it which involve the propagation of certain kinds of research at the top of a field that you know you may not be able to do that so well. You, you, you need uh, a connection. This was, I had thought, but uh, I could be wrong, this was the reason for the organization of, of PhDs, that PhDs were never done uh, uh, wholesale. They were done retail. Um, I assume that was true of your PhD experience, right? Yeah, I'm not saying I didn't get a good deal, but you know. Yeah. So I, I have a, a, a more general question, which is at the undergraduate level, um, you know, there has been this tendency to, uh, I, I guess the, the larger trend that Jack was talking about earlier, not so much the Khan Academy, but the University of Phoenix stuff, right? The, the MOOCs that uh, lots of universities are making available publicly. I think the biggest one was actually done by Yale uh, on, on uh, happiness and, that's, uh, and sort of uh, how to be more happy, what research on happiness was like. And my question is, um, what is the, uh, you know, how much of what we now think of an undergraduate education is actually a kind of bespoke curio that we've kind of created as a, um, as a, like this, this thing that we have designed in American education, the residential college, the, uh, but it's, it's actually a series of kind of 19th century and early 20th century affectations. It's totally unnecessary. And um, the model that actually has more uh, uh, plausibility, you know, like sort of makes more sense is a kind of British model where you have these lectures that are, you could definitely do online. And then you have an individual, you know, in the British system, they're called a tutor, uh, um, you know, who kind of supervises you in the context of that. And I guess my question is like, how, how much of what we think of as the sort of four year college experience exists because that's the best way to educate people and how much of it is just the system that we've inherited that that you really could think about wholesale revamping if it weren't for you know the need to fund the tenure of people like you guys but ben why don't you ask that question about the british system which if anything is a curio of a 17th century not of yeah. the 20th century oh so i i i i am i'm saying we have now the technology to radically rethink all of this. And 
So if you were like, I, I'm, I'm actually not attacking this system. I'm saying if, if you started from scratch now, as in the current environment, the coronavirus is forcing us to do, at least on a very short-term temporary basis, um, what would a university, maybe a university education would look nothing like the British system and nothing like the US system. Is there, is there, is there, is there anything other than the weight of the fact that we've always done it this way and colleges have campuses and you know, lots of professors to, to, to this design or, uh, or are there, is there some specific reason why we're confident that this is the structure that, that best educates the largest number of people? Can I, can I also just to, to follow up on that before Jordan and Jack answer, can I add in and kind of maybe overarching umbrella kind of answer to this is hallway effects, which is just what we have understood always as kind of like network, the ability to form networks. Like, I don't know about you, but my parents, when I find, when I got into, it was a huge deal. I got into a, like an Ivy league school for undergrad. They were like, you're not, it's not about what you learn. It's about who you meet type of like a type of thing. And I didn't understand that at the time I was 18. I was like, wanted to go and learn all this stuff and is excited, but that's, but that there is this other element of being in a location with these people all at once and learning from them and going to dining halls with them and having the opportunity to learn from not only your instructors, but your peers. Um, and so I just kind of wanted to, to put that out there uh, as a kind of a, on top of your question, Ben, with Jordan yep. and Jack. All right, so let me answer. First, I just want to announce that Kate's draft has arrived. And oh, so I Kate, think everyone, I please. The paper is, is real. Yeah, it's it's, it's five not, pages, do, and it's, be nice. <laughs> I'm gonna teach it. I, you, in fact, you and I are going to teach it together. Uh, of something. I know we're delaying. I think that Ben and I decided we're going to delay in lieu of show one hour so that I can right. teach. So, but I wanted to say in, in response to you, Ben, think about the functions that that uh, universities provide. And by the way, we haven't said a word about elementary and secondary education, where I think, in fact, the investment should be even higher and even more important. Um, and there, uh, and there, the uh, uh, digital technologies also uh, made important inroads. But I would let's separate out three different functions. One function is educating mass publics, which uh, wasn't a big deal uh, with the kind of knowledge necessary that you get at college as opposed to elementary and secondary. That became more and more important over the course of the 20th century. So large state universities do that. That's primarily what they do. The second thing, however, is, um, is the production of new knowledge. And that doesn't have to be done in the same place where education occurs, but it happens to be done that way. And the reason why is that American universities are actually based on not the English uh, Oxbridge model, they're based on German research universities in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And it's basically expanded after World War II. So you have to have a place where knowledge is produced, uh, which is different than just conveying knowledge. And third of all, um, uh, our university system is a credentialing system. That is a system for basically saying this person has done well, this person has done even better, this person has done still better. And it's a way of basically uh, signaling to employers and to other uh, institutions, society that award opportunities, uh, you know, where talent should go. Those are three different things that have to go on in an educational system. It doesn't have to be done according to the model of the post-World War II American Research University. It certainly doesn't. 
um, uh, because in fact, there are lots and lots of community colleges that aren't research institutions, um, could be done many, many different ways. But I suspect that what'll happen, and, and Jordan, I'd be interested in your view, is that it won't be a sharp break. It'll be evolutionary. That is, we'll start with the institutions that we currently have uh, and we'll build out from them and they'll they'll change in certain ways. And then within you know 25 to 30 years, they'll look very different from the institutions we started with. What do you think, Jordan? I mean, a, a few things. One, I'm a pretty big believer in path dependence. So I don't think that what would we, what would be best if we started completely from scratch and wiped our memory of the existence of the American college system is really a good question. Or maybe it's a good, it's an interesting thought experiment, but it doesn't have so much relevance to what we actually do in a world where institutions do exist. I mean, I think it's look, I think it's a little bit like a cheeseburger. I mean, if no one had ever heard of a cheeseburger, okay. and we said, is this the best sandwich we could possibly invent? I truly don't know the answer to that question. Maybe oh there's a better in a world where everybody likes cheeseburgers and where people around the world are trying to build cheeseburger restaurants that approximate American cheeseburgers as well as they can, and where often they travel to America and eat cheeseburgers, and where people basically really like cheeseburgers. So to come back to the, I mean, to come back to where we are with American colleges, College students like college. College students value college. Um, the problems that we have with higher education, as you said about the string quartet, is that it's become very expensive. But if suddenly cheeseburgers cost $500, we would ask, what's the problem that's making them cost $500, not what's wrong with the concept of the cheeseburger? I don't know. I mean, I, like, I think since the whole, since one cheeseburger of the whole alumni donate search. tons of money to cheeseburgers oh. because they value cheeseburgers. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if we could get like, I mean, I think one of the whole points of cheeseburgers is that they're cheap. Um, and so if you started having expensive cheeseburgers, it would be like what happened to jeans in the late 1970s, right? When, when, when Jordash figured out that this, these work pants could be a fashion statement. Uh, and then you'd have to ask like, why are we paying so much for cheeseburgers? But you wouldn't um, ask okay, the color half of our bodies in a completely different way. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but I'll gladly, uh, we have a... I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we have a question from Michelle Cades, who appears from the test of her question to be ben, we know, a we real person. Ben and, me. and she also appears to know you. And you. She went to high school with us. I do not, I'm not aware of knowing yeah. Michelle Cades. Was I not but, supposed to uh, out you as a Winston Churchill High School alum, Ben? Uh, no, actually I am known as that because I, I recently had Josh Sharfstein on the podcast. And, oh, wow. And, and, and that was, uh, you know, our, like our high school class, you know, meeting on, uh, on technology that didn't exist. Anyway, Michelle, uh, turn on your, 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 camera if you choose to show your face. And uh, if not, uh, the floor is yours. I totally don't know how to turn on my camera because I am a Luddite. <laughs> Hi, Jordan. Hey, Michelle. <laughs> so my question was about the, the people fields. I'm a social worker. I'm a former special educator. And I can't fathom how either of those fields could go to truly just online or remote or electronic learning. There's so much nonverbal communication and relationship that's a part of those fields that I, I, you know, I'm just curious to hear your comments on that because I can't even begin to think of how one could truly be successful in those fields without 
the human connection. And which class were you in at Churchill High School? Same as Jordan. Ah, and, and am I a, a forgetful clod or did we never know each other? No, but you're two years older, so we only overlapped one year. I guess that's it. <laughs> well, it's good to meet you if I never met you before. I may also be. I can't do math. Our high school was only 10 through 12. I worry that people will be like, Jordan can't do math. No, our high school started at grade 10. We're going to get to your ability to get the wrong answer <laughs> okay. to math in a, in a few minutes. Uh, good talking with you, Michelle. Thank you. Sorry. What do you guys think the answer to Michelle's question is? I mean, I think she's, I think she's right. I think that's a perfect example of the kind of thing that it's very difficult for me to see how it could be done well. Uh, it doesn't have to be the exact model we have, we have now, but how it could be done well outside a sort of pretty tight person-to-person -person communications model. Because what are you learning? Are you learning, uh, you learning particular facts, or are you learning skills? So um, I want to make, I want to make the counter argument here, which is you know, I, I want to make it in a limited way because I actually think there are limits to it. But ever since Lawfare, we founded Lawfare, we have almost since the beginning had student contributors who are generally, uh, you know, they're law students, generally second and third year law students. And a great many of them I have never met in person or, or if if I've met, it's been kind of glancingly at a dinner that we sometimes throw in Cambridge for some of the law students. Um, but my interactions with them are really in immense part, uh, electronic, telephonic, and a lot of them are just within Google Docs. You know, they'll send in copy, we'll jump in the same Google Doc at the same time. I'll edit them or sort of write on top of them. And, um, you know, some of them, we have developed very deep relationships with that, with that this way. And I think really kind of taught them how to do a certain style of writing. Now, I don't want to overstate this because the ones that we have the deepest relationships with, that often jumps the, the electronic barrier and they end up being people who are you know, we end up spending time with in, in real life. And, um, but, but I do think this kind of bespoke relationship that is, in this case, it's a, it's a writing intimacy, but it can be, it's quite intimate. Um, and it's highly individualized. And it's a form of training that's based on a certain set of skills, but also on a kind of relationships. Um, I'm actually impressed with how much of it you can do remotely with people you've never actually met. I think you're confusing two different issues. One issue is the medium through which relationships are formed. Uh, these are relatively small, one-to-one -one or one-to-a-few relationships. The other is the question of scale. So it just happens to be the case that uh, this medium allows scale. Uh, but you still have a distinction between those forms of education that can be done at scale and those forms of education that require relatively intimate one-on-one -on -one or one-to-few one uh, connections. 
some those one to few connections in many cases, and your example is a good one, uh, can be done through certain kinds of technologically mediated relationships. Uh, the problem, however, is that uh, the move to scale in education using uh, these technologies does not capture those parts of education. That's really what the issue is. And actually, can I use that to pivot a little bit? Because, you know, in my world of research, matters, in some sense, the, the shock of COVID, like, it's, it, does, it can't overnight sort of scale education. But what it does by force is de-physicalize education. So even the relationships That's that we have as educators, which are one-on-one -on -one and which are rather tight and guild-like, those also have to, for the moment, not be physical and not take place in our office. So I will say in math, um, we've been having seminars online, like through Zoom and other, uh, and other uh, similar platforms. And I got to say, it works great. And that I think we might see, maybe the world doesn't care so much, sort of like what happens with math research seminars. But I mean, I, I assume it's not just math. I think that we could see, it's something we've always said, boy, we should sort of like figure out how to do this. So we sort of buy fewer plane tickets and burn less carbon. And we have a sort of a distinguished person giving a lecture to our department to like, you know, 25 people, like maybe we could do that. And now we've sort of had to learn how to do it very suddenly and it works pretty well. And that's not a scalable thing at all, but it's something that I think, um, for instance, I am very hopeful that I will never have to go to the National Science Foundation for a panel meeting again. And I like the National Science Foundation, <laughs> but um, there's no reason that 20 of us should have to go on a plane and do this. And I think this is gonna make us realize, hey, we really one can reason. do that virtually from now on. One reason, I agree with everything you said is great. The fact that, for example, I can have Kate teach my class, it's only 30 people in the class. Teach, so it's like, a, it's like a larger seminar. The fact that Kate can now do this and she can just come in and do one class on her article is great. It's just great for making education better. The only reason why you would wanna to go to, the, uh, to a particular conference, academic conference, is because it's the side conversation. That's it's what the, I just said. It's that was my whole point. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly that, like you said. That you lose. I mean, I'll give you just a very simple example, and it's not a great example. So we have these uh, con convenings of the Information Society Project on Thursdays, so-called ideas lunches. And what happens, there's the ideas lunch, there's a speaker, people talk, it's like a little seminar. Then usually what happens for the next half hour after that is various folks who are fellows of the ISP or who are my PhD students sidle up to me. And they say, you know, I have this problem, I have that problem. What can we do about this? What can we do about that? And the fact that they're all gathered together at this point allows me to have a, a sequence of one-on-one -on -one or one-on-few conversations with them. If you can manage to create that world using these technologies, then in fact, it is equivalent. And I just want to say that, like, having been a beneficiary of that exact program, that there's another piece of that, which is that I'm waiting to talk to you, Jack, or like hoping to get to be the next person that sits down in your office. There's a bunch of us standing in line or hanging out in the lounge. And there's a bunch of people I would never talk to or seek out to have conversation with. And I start telling them about my project. And then they have interesting thoughts about my project. And like, they have their own kind of insight. And it's not interdisciplinary, so to speak, I would say. It's just like, they're coming from a privacy context. So it inset, like all of these questions that I'm asking, um, paying a whole different set of responses to them that I can then you know, use in my footnotes and like kind of make my paper richer. And there's all of these moments that those things have happened. And I think that that's, hall maybe hallway effects is not enough to kind of like, it's just the accidental nature of physically bumping into people that doesn't exist when you're only having 
meetings that are planned, which frankly is part of why I love this show, which is like, there's nothing planned about it. You two didn't know each other and had never met each other. And it's, it's a part of the, it like recreates a little bit of the spontaneity of everyday life of bumping into some, a stranger on an airplane or in a grocery store or at an academic conference. But I think there's a, there's some limited Zoom functionality that actually attempts to mimic that a little bit. So like the, the chat function allows you, except that we've shut it down to prevent uh, people from uh, Zoom bombing. Exactly. And so like, I think there's like, what it's lacking is the, the, the sidle up to Jack function or the bump into Kate function, um, which, which I think it's uh, like actually an interesting question. What would those functions look like if while we're having this conversation, people in the audience wanted to kind of have side conferences and say, hey, I've seen you've been here for each of these episodes. Who are you? You seem kind of, I liked your question. You seem pretty interesting. Uh, what, are, what are you working on? Um, uh, I, I think that would be sort of begin to approximate some of the functionality that you're describing this as missing. There's also though the social element of it. The social element of going out to dinner with people, of having lunch with them, of taking a walk with them. And that's actually how relationships are formed in, uh, uh, at, at these events. That, that, and it's interesting. I was thinking about this. When I first started teaching in law school, I first started teaching in 1984. Um, in 1984, it was not that common to uh, spend uh, two or three weekends um, going to various conferences on various specialties of law. Basically, your colleagues were the people who were in the same building where you are, and uh, you spoke to the trust and estates professor, or you spoke to the secure transactions professor, or you spoke to the professor in some other discipline, and that was the culture. And what happened over the course of, of, of a 30 year or so career was that what happened was that people uh, began to use uh, transportation to go other places and meet other specialists. And that changed the culture of the law school, or the individual law school. And um, I don't know if that's true in math departments, but is, is that true? Because you have sp sub specializations in math, right? We have specializations, but I think, gosh, certainly as long as I've been in math and my senses for like many years before that, there was like a great deal of like gathering of specialists in a particular subject from like around the country and the world. But I think that's always been part of our culture from, well, yes, from German law is, law is late to the game because law was a professional, was professional as opposed to highly academic and it got more academic uh, during the second part of the 20th century. So uh, before we... Uh, run out of time. I actually do want to talk to Jordan about a substantive matter. Um, Jordan, uh, years ago, I created a monster by connecting you with Slate Magazine uh, because they asked me, who's the mathematician you know who speaks and writes in English best um, and can explain math concepts? And you ended up writing a column in Slate, um, which uh, had, you've kind of translated into a kind of remarkable sort of public math um, explainer, uh, which is, you know, sort of side career as a kind of public math voice. 
And I, um, I'm, you wrote an incredible book, which for anybody who hasn't read How Not to Be Wrong, um, I really recommend it. It's a, a, a book about how if people could think just a little bit more like mathematicians, not a lot more, just a little bit more, they would save themselves a lot of spectacular error. And I'm, I've been really reminded of this over the last few weeks as we have watched one person after another get basic math concepts spectacularly wrong in the context, in the context of uh, predicting what COVID-19 is and is not going to do and how we should think about it. Uh, and you've been tweeting some very interesting stuff about what we should and shouldn't think based on certain data. Um, and so I just want to ask you, what steps should people take intellectually in order not to be wrong about COVID-19? So that's a really interesting question. Obviously, one I've been like thinking about very closely. Um, I mean, there's a few obvious things, but in some sense, they're now behind us, right? I mean, I think the most glaring mistake that people made was to sort of like a month ago say, look at the scale of this thing, like, look how small it is. And that sort of, you know, which, which evinces sort of some basic uh, lack of understanding of how exponential growth works, but that's okay because I don't think, it's not okay, but it's understandable because I just don't think our physical intuition is really built to understand exponential growth. Like our sort of mental way of envisioning things is built on physical objects, which tend to move at a constant speed. So if it moves 20 miles in one hour, it's gonna move 20 miles in the next hour, like most likely. If not, it's because sort of some conditions, underlying conditions changed in some way to make it go faster. Um, so you see a lot from like of things that people wrote very recently, right? There was a guy who wrote an editorial on the Washington Post saying like, look, like less than 200 people have died of this in the United States. Well, that wasn't true that night. Literally like the night his thing <laughs> came out and it was, you know, it was very far from true three days later. Um, uh, so that's one thing. Um, I think, you know, the stuff I've been wrestling with and the stuff I've been tweeting about, it, it's hard because, of course, you want to feel useful and you want to feel like, okay, like, let's sit down and figure this out. And what you realize is that there is so much uncertainty at this time, April 2nd, about what's actually going on and what the dynamics of the disease actually are, um, that you have to have, like, a lot of humility about it and say like as a decision maker what do you do based on the unpleasant reality that you don't actually know anything or that you don't actually know very much that's really hard and it's probably not nice to be the person who has to say that to the decision maker because maybe the problem the, the trouble is the decision makers are will preferentially go find someone who will tell them what the answer is even if they don't know so jordan if you were advising policymakers um, uh, and you, your basic view is there's not enough good data to resolve radical uncertainty about what the current condition is and how bad it's going to get. Um, is the reasonable policy advice from that act as though this is a worst case scenario because it very well may be and you know, 
Um, and or, or is there some more sophisticated way to not be wrong on the basic advice that you, the basic policy steps that you take? Well, first of all, I would definitely say you're not planning for the worst case scenario, you're planning for the second worst case scenario. Because the worst case scenario is where nothing we do can stem the spread of the disease and then we're screwed. Okay. And in that case, nothing we do matters. So the second worst scenario is the one where it's really bad, but by taking correct action, it can be mitigated. That's what I think you have to plan for. Um, I mean, I think I'm hesitating because, you know, one doesn't want to be the Richard Epstein of differential equations, right? I mean, that's always the danger. Oh. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I think that everyone is going to say now that anyone who is like, I feel like there's going to be a default before anyone ever makes any predictions in this type of like high crisis time that like, I don't want to be the Richard Epstein. I think that by acknowledging that, like that you already aren't. So I think that that's, like, I think that that's, I think that you're fine. <laughs> I, I I mean, okay, let me say, let me say this to start. I think the thing to read on this, which I think is very good, is by, and now I feel a bit bad because I don't know how to pronounce her surname, by, uh, by Zainab Tuchewski. Yes, the, Zainab. Of tear gas. say her name properly. Zainab Tuchewski? I think that's right. Oh, okay. Um, so she wrote a great piece in The Atlantic today, which, is, which essentially says, like, look, we have to accept that whatever we think it is, we're going to be wrong in a lot of aspects because there's so much uncertainty. Um, and so she, I think, correctly says that, um, that these models people are building, they're there to give you very broad, qualitative ideas. In some sense, I would say there is a sort of consensus building in the models, but that consensus is not the peak is going to be on this day and it's going to involve this many people. It's that we're in that zone where it would be very bad if we did nothing and less bad if we did something. That's already like a sort of serious thing to be able to say. And I think the models are roughly in agreement on that. Although even that, there's not total agreement about it, even in those broad strokes. So I do think maybe one will make as compared to the making a month ago of saying 20 people, what's the big deal, is taking predictions. And at this moment, it's the one from the group at the University of Washington, but next week it'll probably be like another thing. Um, saying, oh, it says the peak is going to be this day. In my state, the peak is going to be April 16th. And like, putting it on their calendar. Okay, we just got to get through April 16th and then we're past the peak. People shouldn't read those things that way. They should read them as saying, under current regimes of social isolation, we think there is a peak. Mm -hmm. Well, then let me ask a follow-up question to that, uh, Jordan. Uh, you just mentioned people read that the peak is such and such a time. Um, it seems to me that an institution that has an incredibly important role to play and allowing people not to be wrong and to think straight is the press, is media. So, because they can report the same facts in multiple ways, and some which will uh, allow people to make, uh, you know, plausibly wise decisions, and some which will basically entirely mislead them. So, it, it suggests that people you should be talking to are members of the press. I mean, do you feel like? Are, you have things in mind where you feel like the press has particularly fallen down? Well, I'm going to throw this over to Kate for a second, but 
Yeah, I can think of a whole a bunch of situations where parts of the press, yes, have not been very good at reporting what's going on. I mean, I yeah, go ahead. yeah, there hasn't been, I don't think that like it's, I, I mean, so for example, I mean, um, and that's both the press's fault and not the press's fault. I don't really actually kind of want to fault the press here. Like, so for example, the press reported because the CDC was reporting because it was actually turned out to be bogus news that like, there was like a period of time in which like, they were saying it didn't really matter if you wore masks um, and that masks didn't do as much as you thought. And then it was like, oh, that's actually not true. That was to basically curb the, uh, that was like the states, like the CDC said that because they were trying to curb the number of people rushing out to get masks from critical areas that needed them like hospitals. Um, and so there was that kind of like, that kind of, um, that kind of, um, misinformation and disinformation and like and manipulated information um i just think that basically what really falls down here and what really gets put on blast is our complete inability to distinguish between those things and that it requires time and investigation and primary source fact finding and that that doesn't jive in any way with how media and information is spread in the instant instantaneous like like medium of the internet um, yeah I I agree with that. I think like I think Jordan's the point that Jordan started with, which is that exponential growth uh, is not a, an intuitive idea to people who base things on physical objects, has a direct analog in what Kate said, which is news that uh, news that a bunch of people are sick in Wuhan province in China. It should cause you to stay home uh, and interact minimally with other people and wash your hands constantly simply does not comport with our experience of the world or how we want to experience news. And so we are, we are primed by a whole lot of experience as well as just the way we consume information that when somebody says, that's ridiculous, 70,000 people die of flu every year. Let's not turn stuff upside down because you know a few people are, are, are showing up in the United States with this virus. Um, it simply doesn't comport with the way we process information to take that and say, um, yes, but you know, all these epidemiologists they're quoting, and by the way, most people have never heard the word epidemiologist before. Or um, not a month ago. You know, right, like, and, you know, the idea that, like, when something is so counterintuitive to the way you experience the world, uh, it's very hard for, for people to, and I experienced this myself. I, you know, I kind of watched Wuhan with a foreigner fascination, but no real sense, no, no sense that it was coming here for me, even though but theoretically- But I also wanna emphasize that it is not like your response should have been, this is definitely coming here because all this depends on certain features that make this disease different from other diseases, notably you know, different from the one we call SARS, although this is the SARS too. I mean, this one difference that there's this period of asymptomatic transmission, whereas with SARS-1, you're sort of maximally contagious, like long after you've started to 
experience symptoms that are obviously sick, that makes a huge difference in transmission. And that's like a sort of factual detail that it's like very hard to see from afar. Right, so but we not see this as inevitable. If you, well, but if you're the president or if you're a policymaker, you're the one who's supposed to be processing having experts process this for you. And you're the one who's, or if you're a news organization for that matter. And by the way, the New York Times did a fabulous job. If you look at the New York Times during the uh, latter part of last year and the very beginning of this year, this was on the front page every day. The, the exact issues that you're describing were noted repeatedly, um, but people don't, you know, in the absence of kind of consistent messaging from leadership, hey, this is big, this is a big problem, uh, and we need to think about it as such, uh, the temptation just to look at it like the object that is moving at a constant rate and will continue to move at a constant rate, because that's how we experience objects moving, I think is very tempting. Well, and, you know, the I other basic feature of our intuition about things like this, and this is sort of what I'm writing about right now as I try to sort of write about this stuff in real time for the new book is, I mean, the basic, the most basic principle of modeling that there is, is what happened before is going to happen again. But that's Bayesian reasoning, Jordan. It's like, it's undone by Bayesian reasoning. So if you took like, if you took not to like, not to go cognitive science on this all of a sudden. Go for it. But I'm going to go cognitive science on it. But I think that like, what we're seeing is like, this reminds me of when I studied naive physics. Like is basically like, I don't know if you remember if you've ever taken like, you've learned about naive physics, but there's this entire, um, there's this entire set of studies that were done for a while in like the cognitive science realm of like, you would have people tr tell you what was going to happen to a ball that was rolling towards a cliff. Mm -hmm. And like, they thought that the ball would eject straight out into like, and then suddenly fall. That was like the path that they you asked them to map it. Like they had no natural, like, physical understanding of it. And I used to joke with my, I was like, I wanted to write a paper about how this was all based on Looney Tunes and the ability it of- is. That's exactly like, how, the, how the coyote falls. Yes. I was like, cause the wily coyote runs out into the middle of a gap in between two canyons and then just falls straight down. So this is like actually a learned, this is actually a learned mechanism. It's not naive at all. Um, but my point is, is like you update your prior, you, there's a certain amount that learning can do, but there is- uh, yeah. But, but yeah. I, so I want to. So I wasn't going to uh, cast aspersions, but let me just say the following: uh, We don't have a single press in the United States. We have media, which consists of reporters at various organizations, and we have opinion media, which are also part of the press. And we also have a highly politically partisan media today in the United States, and we have ideological elements of media and press. Those things have to be factored into the question of how people are processing information. One last thing I wanted to mention. There's a really important job that journalists can play, journalists in conjunction with scientists, in breaking down scientific concepts and explaining them to lay audiences in ways that they can take away practical knowledge, practical information. And so, for example, the fact that there is a crisis in Wuhan, uh, right, at some point uh, in uh, January. Most people will treat it just the way Ben said. 
it's not my problem. It's interesting, but it's not my problem. It really takes skillful uh, journalists working with skill with good scientists, scientists who knows how to convey ideas, to basically explain what's going on and why it's important. And, and this is not just true for ordinary people, it's also true for policymakers who are basically just ordinary people. They're ordinary so, people who happen to be placed in positions of power and authority. They need the same kind of combination of explainers and researchers as ordinary people do. So we're gonna have to wrap up, but I wanna tie up Jack's, Jack's um, thing. So there, my parents sent me today um, this this chain mail uh, that has been going around, and it's actually not disinformation at all. Um, I will um, I will pull it up uh, for a second. It was um, it basically says that uh, there has been this is from the John Hopkins. And this is so interesting. The John Hopkins is like the thing that this. I'm sure it's not necessarily from John Hopkins at all, but that John Hopkins has uh, has sent out this. Um, this description. And this is, I love this, very interesting facts uh, regarding COVID-19. The virus is not a living organism, but a protein molecule covered by a protective layer of fat. It's like, it's like, it's literally, it's this entire thing, it goes, since the virus is not a living organism, but a protein molecule, it is kill, it, it is not killed, but decays on its own. And it's like, it is like a, like a dum-dums version of like virology. <laughs> For like, it is like phospholipid bilayers are only broken down by nonpolar solvents, like alcohol or soap. <laughs> like that is literally like, but they put it in terms of, but soap breaks down fat and high concentrations of alcohol break down fats. So you can break down the safe thing around this protein and, and like, and it just, it's all, I, like I kind of read it and I was like, yes, this is completely correct, but it's exactly to Jack's point. But my, to further Jack's point, it's not being spread by media as we understand it. This is like this chain text that I got from like my my family. And this is like the fourth time I've seen it. I've gotten it by email like a bunch of different times. That this is like the power of the current moment to spread false and true information about protecting yourself. So you're yeah, saying true that true information could be bullshit. This information where we have actually true information that's disguised as crappy false chain emails. Yeah, right. that's actually kind so, of what I was like, I read it way. really carefully and I was like, no, but this is actually correct. This is just a really, this is just a really basic, basic way of describing some complicated things, but it's not wrong. It's completely correct. So we have to wrap up, but I, so I want to close with uh, the, a question on the table from uh, the, from anonymous attendee who I think is the same if I had to guess, the same anonymous attendee who yesterday uh, uh, asked the Baffin Island question of De John Turk and seems to have been a former resident of Baffin Island. Um, anonymous attendee asks, what is your advice for students in higher education? Uh, I will be taking vector calculus and I'm a little bit nervous to not have in-person office hours. Yeah, so this whole conversation has been kind of from the point of view of faculty and teaching. Let's uh, turn it around. Uh, Jack, what is your, you know, general advice to students in this environment? I can't give much advice about vector calculus. Um, no, no, but, but, but like, uh, you know, uh, whatever the, whatever the, uh, 
big scary class that that you might have students who were going to take. Uh, let's just take vector calculus as a metaphor for something that the student is a little bit intimidated by and expects to need uh, in-person conversation. Um, you know, uh, it's the biblical injunction. Um, you know, those who ask, much is given. Uh, that is, if you uh, uh, if if you need help, ask for help. Um, it turns out that most students are too afraid to ask for help. Um, and very often the people who teach, they wanna help you because that's why they got into the business of being educators. So ask. Jordan? Um, I, would, I would say this. Um, first of all, on a sort of very basic practical level, your professors probably are having office hours. Like we're still getting paid and we still are sort of supposed to do our jobs as we do them. So if you have office hours, like when there's not an epidemic, you also are supposed to have office hours in whatever way you can when you do have a pandemic. And I think office hours actually is a great example of the kind of not one-to-one, -one, but also not large scale interaction that I think and I hope we can figure out how to productively do non-physically in the same way that I think we're doing pretty well with our research seminars, which are maybe 20 people. We've been, I think those have been working pretty well non-physically. And I believe an office hour with a professor sort of fielding questions from, let's say, between five and 20 students at a time. Um, it may take us a few weeks to figure out how to make that work most effectively and you know, be patient with us. But um, I think we're going to be able to make that work. I believe that. All right, uh, this has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you both for joining us. Um, Kate, who do we have tomorrow? Uh, you, well, it's, uh, it's um, Amanda Sloat, right? Ah, uh, yes, I suppose I should uh, chat with Amanda Sloat about that because one person come on the show. Does, <laughs> who does not know that tomorrow is Amanda Sloat day. Part of the conceit of this show, Jordan and Jack, if you're not frequent watchers, is that we plan the show on the show. And so this right, is- But in this, in this <laughs> case, an element of planning eluded me, which is we planned to have Amanda Sloat, but the part where I asked Amanda Sloat whether she was coming well, on Amanda the show- Sloat? Tell tomorrow. me and your viewers who Amanda Sloat is, because I don't Amanda know. Amanda Sloat is, is my awesome Brookings colleague who, um, uh, uh, is a, a, a scholar of uh, US relations with, with European countries. Uh, but over the last few weeks, she has engaged in this remarkable project of just calling lots and lots of people that she knows all over the world, like a hundred of them, and talking to them about coronavirus in their country. And she, uh, she wrote a wonderful piece in Politico magazine about how different countries were, uh, were uh, what was like the on the ground situation in lots of countries. Uh, and I just thought it would be a lot of fun to have her on and talk about it, which is, remains a great idea <laughs> and requires an email be sent from me to Amanda Sloat rather promptly. Um, until then, uh, uh, Thanks to everybody who joined us on this, either on Zoom or on YouTube. And, uh, you know, tomorrow you will not be able to have fun, but you can join us once again at five o'clock in lieu of fun. And until then, have a great day.
Jack and Jordan, thank you guys so much for doing this. It was such a good conversation.